Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Rock Harbor Church virtual service. Uh, We're glad you could join us this Sunday morning. And we're studying the book of Exodus. We're looking at Moses' life and his deliverance of Israel. And and we're going to go through all of that that you're probably aware of. But in in our study, we're going to go a little bit more deeper than normal and get into the nuances of understanding the Hebraic understanding of things and words and phrases and to really drill down so that we can understand this at a greater level. And so today, if you join us, we want you to have your Bibles ready. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. We're going to start in verses probably 15 through 22. And we'll see if we can get to chapter 4. I'm not sure we will have time, but we'll go as far as we can get today. And we're going to look at today the Lord's assurance, which is his provision. We've looked at the Lord's assurance to Moses about his presence. Now we're going to look at the Lord's assurance to Moses about his provision that he will provide for Moses and the Israelites in this deliverance out of Egypt. And so we're going to key in on this. This will be part two. Last week we looked at his, uh, a number of things about his provision, and, and this week we're going to look at some more. But as we're going through what we're going through t- today in this crisis, this coronavirus crisis that has been uh, put on our whole world, Um, what happens sometimes is we have doubts. Um, Doubts are a part of our faith. Um, We want to work to erase those doubts. Having no faith is the opposite of belief. But doubts are a part of belief. Doubts are a part of faith. They're a part of our lives and our freedom to believe or not to believe. And so we wrestle sometimes with doubts. And in when we get put in a crisis like this, sometimes those doubts surface. And any, any crisis that we go through, um, those doubts will arise in us. And so what God is showing Moses, uh, because he's, Moses is afraid of not only his own doubts, but the Israelites' doubts, that God is going to show how he will provide through this whole thing. And that's what our takeaway is as well. God will provide as we walk with him in the calling that we have. God will provide on that path as we step out. And so we're going to look at these principles, these promises of God that is given to Moses. But understand there are universal principles uh, in, in what God is saying to Moses that apply to us as well. So yes, he's talking to the nation of Israel, but because we're in the new covenant, um, and that's been, we have been grafted in. We receive the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. And that also means that these general principles of provision will also apply to us in the church as well. So we want to take note of what God is saying. Um, so let's, let's get into the text. Let's get into understanding how God provides not only for Moses and Israel, but how he provides for us in our call. So the first thing we want to look at is the Lord provides protection to carry out our mission. And this is important uh, for all of us. In verse 15, we'll start there and it says this, 
Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So like we said last week, in the ancient world, the name revealed something about the deity's character and action that he would take for his people. And like we looked at last week, we look at the paleo name of God, which is Yahweh, but how it was spelled in Paleo-Hebrew and understood that it said, hand, behold, nail, behold. So embedded in Yahweh's name was what, he, what action ultimately he would do for us as humanity. But I want you to note this, that this paleo form of Hebrew and God's name itself in the original Hebrew is a verb. It means to take action towards something. And so what, what the revealing of God's name uh, uh, was understood by the Israelis was that he would do this act of deliverance. He would save them. He would help them. And, and so they, they understood that, and that was the message using his name. And to know the name of the deity allowed people in the ancient world the ability to call on the Lord for help, to pray to him, to worship him. And so having his name was a privileged relationship. Why Moses asked for the personal name of God is because the Israelites had forgotten God, the God of their fathers. And they had started actually worshiping Egyptian deities and, and this is why we see in Joshua, Joshua 24, verse 14, it says that they were, they were worshiping Egyptian deities, um, not only in Egypt, but also in the Exodus and in the Promised Land. And so a lot of those old habits were hard to break. But this is why it was important to know the name of God. Also, as you can see in this text, the name Yahweh uh, the personal name of God is linked to the past patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because of the promise we call the Abrahamic covenant. And it is through the patriarchs that, that God made these promises to Abraham. It started with him and it passed on to Isaac, then Jacob, and then as we see the 12 tribes of Israel, that's where, where the promises were going through, is the nation of Israel. And that... Uh, that these promises were made and affected every living descendant of Abraham from the 12 tribes of Israel, which are still valid today, by the way. So what God is doing is revealing his name in connection to the Abrahamic covenant and the patriarchs. And this is how the Jews would identify the one true God, through his personal name perpetually. And this is why when Jesus was asked by the religious leaders, uh, or where there were fighting with him and questioning him and, and getting into debates. And he said before Abraham was, I am, he identified with, with Yahweh, that he was Yahweh. And of course, they picked up stones to stone him to death after that. Well, what does this all mean? It means that since God has made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to the Jews perpetually, that God would always protect Israel from being annihilated. So even when the, the modern-day Holocaust happened to other Nazi Germany, there still what were Jews that survived it, and there's still Jews today. Israel will never be obliterated. 
Even in the future, Antichrist will try to obliterate Israel, but he will not do it. He will not be able to be successful in wiping out every Jew on the planet because of this promise. And that's what Pharaoh was trying to do. He was trying to wipe out the Jews. And God was not going to allow that because of the promises he made to Israel and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, obviously. So what's the principle in, in, in this? Is that God protects that which he promises. So if he promises a perpetual um, uh, progeny coming from Abraham, God will protect that progeny from being annihilated. And so when we, when we look at our own lives and what God is saying to us through this as well, is because we're part of the new covenant, God has made a promise through the new covenant to us as believers. And the idea is he will protect us as we carry out our mission. Now, what does that mean? Does he protect us from, all, uh, from everything? No. Is that he will protect us enough in order to complete our mission. Now, part of that mission might be to suffer, might be to take persecution, but you will not be annihilated until you know you finish your mission is the idea. You will not be taken out. You will not be killed until you finish your mission. And again, we're not saying that everything that God's called you to do ends up in martyrdom. We're not saying that at all. Is that you have a job to do, I have a job to do, and you will be protected as you complete that mission for your life in various ways. You will still be able to do it. You might take some hits, you might take, take some lumps, you might get some scars out of it, but you will still be able to survive is the idea. So let's move to the second point of provision. God typically provides through the authority structure. This is important. Verse 16, it says this, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. So notice that the reference is, go gather the, is, the, the elders and talk to them. So Moses uh, is the, uh, commanded by God to assemble the leaders of Israel. And this is due to the authority structure of Israel. And, and what Moses was going to tell them was important that the leadership heard first from God and that God wanted it to, to obviously deliver them from their suffering and that he had plans to protect them through all of this. Well, anyway, the principle in this is God, as you know, the, the New Testament points this out, that authority structures are appointed by God, whether that's government, whether that's church leadership, whether that's in the home, with uh, the, the husband being the spiritual leader or whatnot, all authority structures, even in the angelic realm, all of these authority structures are ordained by God. And so, even in Israel, he goes to the leaders first. It would not be proper to, not, to go to those who are not in authority. He went to those who are in authority. And that same is true today. God works through the authority. And so that's important for us to understand. Now, let me make a caveat to this. That does not mean you blindly follow authority. 
that means that you follow authority as long as, as the authority doesn't ask you to disobey the scriptures or disobey your God-given rights that are endowed by our Creator. Like right now in this coronavirus, a lot of our rights that come from God, free assembly, free ability to worship and, and gather together, those rights have been stolen from us from these, these, these governors who are practicing these draconian measures for us not to meet as a church, which is totally ridiculous. That breaks and goes against our constitutional right, and that right, freedom of religion, is an endowment from God, not from government. So I don't know who gave these people uh, the power to take away rights. They don't have that kind of power. But that's what's happening all through the United States and around the world. They have taken away and stripped us of our ability to assemble as a church. And I'm telling you what, that is a violation. And before you know it, I think what you're going to start seeing in the near future is a lot of churches saying, we're not obeying that because that's a God-given right. We're just going to go ahead and meet anyway, despite what the um, state is telling us to do. Because enough is enough. We're not giving up our rights. So anyway, the idea of authority is you obey the authority as long as it doesn't ask you to disobey Scripture or take away any rights that are God-given. And that's, that's when you are able to practice civil disobedience, is when they ask you to do things like that. Anyway, back to Israel. If you notice about Israel, God will work through the authority structure. He'll work through the kings. He'll work through the prophets and whatnot. So in the first coming of the Messiah, Messiah presents himself to the religious leaders. They're watching, they're analyzing what he's doing, then they start questioning him, and then they make a final decision about him that he is not the Messiah and that his power comes from the devil. And they commit the unpardonable sin, right? It was the leaders of Israel that rejected the Messiah. And that was, again, how God works through the authority structure. And it was the leaders that handed him over to Pilate. So it was the leaders of the nation of Israel that rejected him. Okay, Not all of Israel rejected him, obviously. There was a lot of followers that made up the early church. But for the second coming, which is predicated on the religious leaders of Israel accepting the Messiah, so he's got, will again work through the authority structure of Israel in the future. And that authority structure in the future will lead the country, the nation of Israel, to accepting Jesus as the Messiah. So, as religious leaders reject him, the first coming, the religious leaders, right before the second coming, will accept Messiah, and then G Jesus will return to rescue Israel. So, as you see in the Bible, authority is a big deal, and that God works through the authority. And what does that mean for you and I? In, in our mission, we have to make sure that we're, we're going through the proper channels of authority, that we understand who we're submitting to and who we're not submitting to. So it's very important in your call to discern who has authority and who doesn't. Because I can tell you what's going to happen. When you try to attempt to do your mission, you will typically be derailed by people who don't have spiritual authority. They will seem like they have authority. They will sound like they have authority, but they actually won't. They actually don't have any authority. 
So make sure in your walk with the Lord that you know who the proper authorities are. Anyway, let's move to the third point of provision. The Lord provides fulfillment of his promises. Now what you're going to see in this is a partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And what I want you to keep in mind is this. The Abrahamic covenant has never been fully fulfilled, nor has the land, nor has the Davidic, nor has the new. So what you have is partial fulfillments of these, preliminary fulfillments. And so when you look at the covenants, you have to understand there's a near fulfillment and then there's far fulfillments. So they come in stages. And what you're going to see is the first stage of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which will deal with the land. So let's look at the text and let me walk you through it, through it a little bit. And I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, let me parse out a little bit about the land. So what you're seeing on the screen right now is the, the land of Israel. Now, this is what it looks like modern as a modern-day example. But the boundaries that were given to Abraham include all the way up to the Euphrates and down to the Wadi of Egypt. So it's a large landmass, which Israel has never accomplished in their history. It will be accomplished in the future by Messiah, when, and Israel will expand to all the boundaries that were given to Abraham. But let me make a note of this as you're looking at the land of Israel. When Moses uh, took the children of Israel there, they first went in, they did some reconnaissance, as you recall, and this was the land flowing with milk and honey. And what does that mean? It seems to be uh, kind of a, a thing that people don't understand. It's a euphemism for the promised land. But when it talks about a land flowing with milk and honey, as Moses overlooked the land, the idea of milk had to do with goat's milk. It had to do that, that the goats would be able to be nourished by the land and provide milk, which is a big substance during that period of time. A lot of even Bedouins will survive on milk alone uh, and honey as well. So what it was saying is this, this land provides pasture land for your animals to produce, and, and one product was milk, and they would turn milk a lot of times into cheese or, or whatever. But that was a big commodity then. The other thing is honey. Now, it, it's not a reference to bees honey. What it is a reference to is the honey that's made out of figs and, or dates or something like that. So a lot of the date palms that grow there in the land of Israel obviously had dates, and that's a big commodity there. And they would turn the dates into a syrup. And they called that honey. Or sometimes they would even use figs and turn that into honey. So the idea is, this is what the trees would produce. So you have pasture lands, and then you have trees. Which is everything that Israel would need for an economy, is the idea. So the land flowing with milk and honey honey is a reference that I'm going to provide you an economy. And the economy was based on the water that came, the rains that came, that made the pasture lands, made the tr trees grow, and the land is extremely fertile. When you go to Israel even today, their ground, a lot of it is volcanic. 
And so that, that's a very nutrient soil. And so they're able to grow things. Also, uh, part of their land um, has to do with being below sea level. And the lower you go below sea level, the lack of radiation, the radiation doesn't come down and doesn't affect the plants or the trees. And so they grow at an exponential rate because the radiation from the sun is not hitting the plants. And that's particularly around the, the Dead Sea area. Uh, and it's an amazing thing. Like for instance, let me give you an example. You can be at the Dead Sea, out in the water, and you will never get a sunburn because you're 1,300 feet below sea level. And so what it tells you is the radiation doesn't go down that far. And so you can be out all day and you will never get a sunburn in that area. Also, the way the land of Israel is situated, if you look at the longitude and latitude, that longitude and latitude is an ideal situation for them to grow all kinds of different crops. For example, there are four climate zones in this little nation called Israel. It is utterly amazing. They can they can pretty much grow any fruit or vegetable in that pocket of the world. So this is why this land is very special. There's no other place on earth that in these short square miles of Israel that they have four climate zones. It is utterly amazing, but this is why it's called the promised land. It's the soil, it's the distance from the sun, it's the longitude and latitude. I mean, it is an ideal location, and that's why it's called the promised land. Okay, nonetheless, this is what it's referring to about these Canaanites, Hittites, because they were all there and planted there and squatting on the land. So the idea here is um, that God has a wonderful future for them, and it was promised to them through the Abrahamic covenant, and now it's going to see kind of a partial fulfillment. He's going to bring them up out of Egypt into the land so they can start inhabiting the land and enjoying the land. And that's important. So the idea and the principle is this. When God redeems, he not only redeems us out of where we are at spiritually, he redeems us to his will for our lives and, and, and redeems us to something. Like, for instance, eternal life, abundant life, becoming more like Christ. So he's going to redeem Israel out of Egypt and then take them to the promised land. And that's a spiritual lesson. He takes us out of the world, out of the, 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 the penalty of sin and death because of Messiah, and then takes us to the abundant life. Takes us to spiritual maturity. Takes us to being conformed to the image of Christ. Because when you look at Egypt and you look at all of the, the act, action that's going on there in Egypt during this time, it is a prefigure or a typology of our salvation. Egypt represents the world. And so God is delivering the Israelites out of the world. Uh, the Red Sea crossing will be their baptism. And then their, their, their wandering in the desert will be their baby steps of being on milk, so to speak, as a, as a baby believer. And then, then, then eventually crossing into the promised land represents their step towards spiritual maturity. So it's a whole look of salvation. And so it applies to us. 
God takes us out of the world, out of our sin, and he puts us into the Messiah who takes us to the promised land of the abundant life, of, of, of spiritual growth. Remember, the promised land is a picture of not heaven, but of spiritual maturity. And that's what he's taking us to, to become conformed to the image of Christ. Another typology I want you to keep seeing is that when you look at Moses, Moses is a typology for Jesus. Moses is a deliverer. He's a liberator. Jesus, too, is a deliverer and a liberator for us spiritually, right? As he would liberate us from sin and death and this world system. So you see the typology. Anything that Moses does will point towards what Jesus will do ultimately for us all. And then when you look at Joshua's life, and he leads the Israelites into the promised land, and if you look at Joshua, he eventually leads the Israelites into the promised land, and just like Jesus does, um, he leads us into our promised land, which is true spirituality, true maturity, true abundant life, and walking with the Lord. So Joshua and Moses are typologies for the Messiah. So that's important to understand. So let's now go to the fourth provision that the Lord does for Moses, and the Lord provides his power. Verse 18, Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Well, here's what's happening here as we parse this out. There to go and make Pharaoh understand that it is Yahweh who is requesting this, not the Hebrews. And, and they are to call themselves Hebrews. Notice that. They are to call themselves Hebrews, not Israelites. Because um, Pharaoh wouldn't know to call them Israelites. Israel, Israel is their spiritual name. What the common person called the Jews were Hebrews. And so Pharaoh doesn't know their theological name, so he references the word Hebrew. And so anyway, they're to go on a three-day journey. Well, most people interpret this, well, they just want to go away for three days and then come back. That's, that's not what that means. The three-day journey is a Hebrew idiom, or an idiom even of that day uh, in the Middle East, uh, in the ancient world for that matter, for a major trip with formal consequences. That's what that term means. The term on the surface seems like a small request, right? We're just going to go three days and come back. It's not. It means totally something else. It was a polite Middle Eastern way of asking for a small thing, but implying a big thing. Like when someone comes to you and they say, hey, can I get a second from you? Can I get five minutes? And it turns into an hour. You ever had that, that done to you? Okay, that's what this means. It's a polite way of saying, um, I'm not just going on three days. It's going to be for a long period of time. It actually implied a total and final departure from Egypt. Notice it is to worship Yahweh, which means they have to leave Egypt in order to properly worship Yahweh. They can't worship him properly in Egypt. And obviously, on another side note, God in his grace and mercy is trying to extend Pharaoh a chance 
to let the children of Israel go without making Egypt pay a high price and making him pay a high price. God is letting him off the hook and giving him a chance because if he, if he doesn't relent and let this happen, God will destroy him politically, economically, and even take the life of his own child. And so God's given him a chance to, to let this happen. So what really the Hebrews are asking or what the Lord's asking is, look, we are leaving Egypt for an undetermined amount of time to go out into, to worship Yahweh. Without, uh, without any of your oversight, Pharaoh. That's what the message Pharaoh is hear, hearing, okay? And since the trip is undetermined, we will, we will be taking our possessions as well. So I want you to think about that. That's really what he heard. That's what it implied. So as, you say, as we said, when someone asks, can I have five minutes and turns to an hour, he knew what that meant. He knew what that five minutes meant. They were asking to leave and take their possessions with them, and they weren't coming back. That's what he heard. And he also knew that if they left, they would join other Semitic groups and eventually probably attack him. So that's what he's hearing, okay? He's not hearing, oh, we want to do, do a, a three-day worship trip and then come back. So now you can see why Pharaoh would refuse this. God, out of his grace and mercy, again, is offering Pharaoh... You can get off the hook right now really easy if you let them go. I'm giving you a chance here. Free the slaves, and you won't have to suffer any plagues or consequences. But Pharaoh, he knows, won't respond like that. And so God will have to ramp up the next request until finally, uh, as you know, the plagues start happening, and the plagues will demand that Pharaoh let them go. But Pharaoh and Egypt will pay a very high, high price for this. And their country will literally, literally be destroyed. So let's go back to verse 19. Verse 19 says this, But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So God already is telling Moses, Don't be discouraged, because I already know how he's going to respond. He's not going to like what we're telling him. And see, obviously God is all-knowing. He's omniscient, and you know that. And, and his omniscient entails several things we call natural knowledge, middle knowledge, and free knowledge. Now, let me explain what's happening here. What you're seeing is God's middle knowledge, is that God knows what individuals will do in any given set of circumstances. We call that God knowing counterfactuals. God has an infinite set of potential circumstances that could exist and knows all actual choices that would be made by individuals in each set. So the idea is, if he knows, he, he puts them in a certain situation, he knows what the outcome will be. And, and so you'll see God knowing counterfactuals, and middle, which is what we call middle knowledge, all over the Bible. He knows what would happen in a potential situation. And so he can redirect or guide or whatever, um, but that's part of his omniscience, which is incredible. And that's what you're seeing here. God already says, I want you to do this, but I already know how he's going to respond. And so we're going to keep ramping, ramping this up because I know his heart will not take this. His heart will not respond properly. So why is God telling Moses 
hey, you're going to go do this, and he's going to reject the offer. It's important for Moses not to misinterpret the scene because Moses can misinterpret Pharaoh's rejection of the offer and go a different way. And so what God is telling Moses, he's already going to reject it, but go do it. What do you mean by that? Well, Moses is told what to expect so that he understands that the plan of God is in effect even when Pharaoh doesn't cooperate. See, the takeaway could be for Moses, if he wasn't told this by God, is that he goes before Pharaoh, Pharaoh rejects it, and Moses instantly just thinks, well, God's plan is not working. This is not working. And then he gives up or gets frustrated or, or God's not delivering on his promises. God doesn't want that from Moses. He wants to tell him what to expect in this situation so he doesn't give up on God's plan and that he continues to trust the Lord for further deliverance and that what's going to have to happen is that God will have to ramp up the power more and more. And, and so he wants Moses to, to interpret this correctly. Well, what's the application on something like this? Well, a lot of times God is going to call you to do something. And that's what we've been talking about, our own personal calls. And you're going to notice that it's very hard to get off the ground. You're going to get a lot of opposition, a lot of pushback, and you're going to think, well, this must not be the will of God because I'm getting so much opposition, and this is not working out, and this is not working out, and, and so I guess it's not the will of God. And that is a wrong move. If God has called you to do something, you should totally expect it will be the hardest thing you ever do. It will be, you will have tons of opposition, you will have a lot of pushback, but God will still make a way as long as you trust and push through. And that's the lesson we're learning with Moses, is God is allowing him to get the opposition, but continue to push through. That he's, this is the call, and I don't care if they said, he said no, we're going to go forward. And that's what you have to understand. A lot of Christians see the call on their life, or they sense the call on their life, but they get the opposition. They say, well, I must be wrong in sensing the will of God, and I wouldn't get all this pushback, and it wouldn't be this hard if God was in it. No. The mistake Christians make is that they think it's easy, then it's the will of God. And that's totally wrong. You think Satan really wants you to accomplish the will of God? To live that out for in your life? Of course not. So he's going to throw everything but the kitchen sink at you to stop. And so a lot of Christians mistakenly think that the ease of something is God's will and the hardness of something is not God's will. It's the exact opposite. And so you have to understand this principle. And, and I will say this. <clears throat> when you see the ease of something happen... Be very careful about that one. Because when Jonah was wanting to run from God and didn't want to do the will of God, he found it very easy to run away from God. He found the ship going in the right direction. He, found, he had enough money in his pocket to pay the fare on the ship. The ease at which Jonah could run gave him a counterfeit assurance that he was doing the right thing. He had gotten away from the will of God, got on a boat, and was heading in the wrong direction. But he became so assured of his decision, he fell asleep on the boat. And you know the rest of the story with that. So be very, very careful in your own life 
If something sometimes is too easy, you need to recheck that. And don't discount how hard something is. Just push through it. And God is testing you whether or not you want it bad enough. So now God comes back and responds to Moses and says this in verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst. And after that, he will let you go. So here is where this power is promised. And it's promised by the right hand of God. He will stretch out his hand and strike Egypt. This is referring to basically the right hand of God. So what he's telling Moses, he's not going to believe you the first time, so I'm going to have to demonstrate my power. And when I demonstrate my power, it's, it's going to eventually convince him, Moses. So stay with me on this. But this idea of the hand of God, typically it's the right hand of God. And it refers to many things, and this is important. The right is the opposite of wrong. Okay, So the right hand is the right place to be. The left hand is typically wrong okay so that's the terminology and understanding the hebraic language okay and basically the right hand or the right side uh is what is just what conforms to an established standard by god and also the right side is the place of honor or the place of authority and in the case of division or appointment in the bible the right hand or right side always comes first and then also, we see in the Bible that the right hand of God is a reference to both a place of proximity to God and of, of authority and a position of power over other powers. And this is why Jesus is said to be at the right hand of God today, where he rules and reigns with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Also, this term, God's right hand or the hand of God, in prophecy refers specifically to Jesus the Messiah, to whom is given all power and authority to subdue enemies. We see this in Psalm 110 and Psalm 118. So, in this passage, it refers to God's power being available. Now, as we talked about, when we, when we saw the burning bush, we saw that it was the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. Now, this is interesting. Remember, it was the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity, which is a pre-incarnate Messiah, Jesus himself. So it's the second person of the Trinity that's doing this. So with this passage and talking about the right hand of God or the hand of God, we know in other passages that the hand of God is the Messiah himself. So it will actually be Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who is doing the miracles and wonders and the plagues which are inflicting the Egyptians, specifically. So that's interesting. And so we will also see in the book of Revelation that God is going to inflict the plagues on the world, on the Antichrist, by the power of Jesus. It is Jesus who's doing all of this. So, this mission that Moses will embark on is way beyond his ability. That's what God's trying to get across to him. This is beyond your power, and God's saying, you will need my power for this mission. And so, this is going to be a spiritual war. But Israel will not have to engage in any physical combat at all with the, the Egyptians. God himself, through his power, will go to war for them. And he will destroy the Egyptians and their army 
by his supernatural powers and only by God's judgment and not human persuasion would Pharaoh allow the Egyptians to go. And that's important for you and, I, you and I to understand. When God promises us his power, we're going to come up in things in our life that are beyond our own capabilities, beyond our own human abilities, our human power. And what God is going to say is, when you reach the end of yourself, and there's things that I have to get involved in, then that's when you'll see my power. That's when you'll see my work. Because I, can, I will do what you cannot do. And so God, many times, will fight battles for us that we can't fight. That's why prayer is very important in spiritual warfare. Because God will do the fighting for us. And we won't have to do anything because it's beyond our capabilities. The Israelites have no capabilities of fighting a physical, conventional war. God will have to do it for them. And that's what he'll do for us. Let's go to the last provision we'll look at today and wrap things up here. And this is where the Lord provides for our needs. Verse 21 says, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So God would work through the acts of his plagues uh, coming upon Egypt, and the plagues would change the attitude of the Egyptians, who were very much anti-Semitic. And were willing to follow the order of the state of Egypt and kill male Jewish boys, remember, by drowning them in the Nile. Um, and now, through the plagues, God's going to change their anti-Semitic uh, stance to a very pro-Semitic stance because of the fear of Yahweh. That's amazing, right? So divine favor has been given to the Jews uh, because of what Yahweh will do to the Egyptians. And they will sympathize with the Jews. And they will actually want to help their fellow neighbors, the Jews. Which is amazing. But we saw this in our, our last hundred years of watching what happened to the Jewish nation when they became a nation again in 1948. What did they go through before that? They went through the Holocaust. And it was the sympathy of the world that changed a lot of key players from being anti-Semitic to pro-Semitic and allowed Israel to reestablish their nation again. They had received favor after going through the Holocaust. And just like you see in the story, the Egyptians, sorry, the Israelites will receive favor from the Egyptians due to the plagues. And so God has a way of even changing the mindset of people through outside occurrences. And he, he did it for Israel, and he did it uh, back then, and he did it even in our time period as well. So that's the hand of God when you see that. Let's continue on in the text. And it shall be when you go that you shall, go, shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians that's pretty remarkable God promised Abraham in Genesis 15 14 that after Israel had served for uh, for 400 years that they would come out with great possessions and that's what's happening here see Folks, when you see this, th these are the spoils of a spiritual battle that Israel 
is basically sitting on the sidelines watching Yahweh fight for them. And then they reap the spoils of the war. And this winning this battle gives them the right to make a request of the vanquished Egyptians who enslaved them for 400 years. And also, it causes them to be willing, the Egyptians to be willing to voluntarily give up their wealth to the Jews. See, this is the ultimate in spiritual battle, a holy war that God fights for. This is the plunder spoils from that war. And in the case of this spiritual war, in which God is fighting, all the Jews would just simply have to ask for the plunder. They wouldn't have to take it or steal it. They would simply just ask for it, and it would be freely given to them. It would freely be surrendered to them. That's what happens when God fights. You won't have to do anything, and the spoils of the war will be surrendered to you. Amazing. And notice who takes the plunder? It's the women. The women are taking the plunder. And normally, when there's battles between armies, the winning army, the men take the plunder by force, right? But God is stressing that even the most powerless person in the Israeli society will be able to take plunder. It will be that easy. And that's how God fights a war. He will totally dismantle the Egyptians to where they're giving their, their treasures away to the Jews. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. And he will do the same for us. If we allow God to fight our battles and let him go before us, a lot of the things we're trying to do and try to accomplish will be done by him. And we just need to get out of the way and let him do it. And before you know it, if he does it, the reward afterwards, the spoils afterwards will be unbelievable. He will lay things just simply in your lap. But you got to discern whether or not God is going to fight for you or whether you're going to get in the fight. Because if you start getting into the fight, you will not come out a winner. You will end up losing because the battle sometimes is too big for us. And you have to be able to discern that if it's a spiritual battle. So in conclusion, what are we to learn from all of this? We saw all the ways that God has provided in these last two sermons. And what is, she try, what is he trying to do with Moses and the Israelites? He's trying to erase their doubts. He is erasing, erasing their doubts so that they can move forward in their call, particularly Moses. And that's the same he's doing for us. We're taking these passages and looking at them on all the way God provides. And that should assure us and erase any doubts in our minds of what God is going to do through us in our call for him. So that we would have the confidence to step out and know that once we step out, he will provide along the way. And he provides all these things to us. And it's extremely important that we believe that. And again, we all struggle with doubts. And these crises that come to our lives, they make us doubt. And primarily, we doubt his provision. And you got to think about if that's a category of unbelief in your life, you have to really get to the bottom of it. Why do you doubt his provision? You know, is it something related to your past? Is it some type of experience that you had? Is it because of the people you grew up around? Is it because of the situations you were in that maybe, you know, you didn't have what you needed and someone didn't provide for you or whatnot that causes you this category of doubt with God? 
Because a lot of people doubt God's provision. And when they doubt his provision, they start manipulating the circumstances and they, they, they get off track. And they try to control the situation and always have enough. And they're insecure about life, insecure about supplies and stuff like that. And it's because they doubt God's provision. So you got to get it to the root of it a lot of times and find out where does this come from? What, why is this doing this to me? Like for instance, this coronavirus causes a lot of people to go haywire on provision. And so they got to run to the store and, and buy as much of whatever they can and stock up, become hoarders. And I'm not saying that buying some extra supplies is wrong. You need to always prep for you know, natural disasters and whatnot. But it shows sometimes people's true colors that they doubt the provision of God, so they got to make it happen. And so, you know, this is why the hoarding starts. This is why, you know, people are, are running to the stores and, and taking everything off the shelf. And there's food shortages, supply chain shortages. And again, I'm not saying not to have supplies. I'm just saying if that's the mindset is I got to provide for myself, then you're really not trusting in God. God will provide. And again, don't take that as anything that you shouldn't go out and get supplies. I'm just saying it's the mindset. And so this, this, what you're learning with Moses, is the idea that God will provide for us in any crisis, some way, somehow. Let me end on an illustration of this. There was a guy in college uh, who was asked to prepare a lesson to teach his speech class. Uh, they were to be graded on their creativity and the ability to drive home a point in a very memorable way. The title of this guy's talk was The Law of the Pendulum. And he spent 20, min uh, 20 minutes carefully teaching the, physics, uh, the physical principle um, that governs a swinging pendulum. The law of the pendulum is this. The pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. Okay, that's the, the premise. Because of friction and gravity, and when the pendulum returns, it will fall short of its original release point. And we've all done these experiments in high school and, and whatnot. And each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until finally it is at rest, right? So he attached a three-foot string to a child's toy top and secured it to the top of the blackboard which, uh, with a thumbtack. He pulled the top of one, uh, to one side and, and, made it, and made a mark on the blackboard where, it, where he let it go. And each time it swung back, it made a new mark. It took less than a minute for the top to complete its swing and come to rest. Well, when he had finished the demonstration, the markings on the blackboard proved his thesis. So then he asked, how many people in the room believed the law of the pendulum was true. And of course, all the classmates raised their hands and also the teacher as well. The teacher started to walk to the front of the room thinking the class was over, but in reality, it had just begun. Hanging from the steel ceiling beams in the middle of the room was a large crude but functional pendulum, about 250 pounds of metal weights tied to four strands of 500-pound test parachute cord. So he invited the instructor to climb up on a table and sit in a chair with the back of his head against the cement wall. Then he brought the 250 pounds of metal up to his nose, holding the huge pendulum just a fraction of an inch from his face. He once again explained the law of the pendulum, 
that had, he had been applauded for moments before. And he said, if the law of the pendulum is true, then when I release this mass of metal, it will swing across the room and return short of the release point. Your nose will be in no danger. So after that final restatement of this law, he looked him in the eye and asked the teacher, Sir, do you believe this law is true? And there was a long pause. Huge beads of sweat formed on his upper lip, and he, he weakly nodded and whispered, Yes. Then he released the pendulum. It made a swishing sound as it arced across the room. At the far end of its swing, it had paused momentarily and started back. He never saw a man move so fast in his life. He literally dived from the table, stepping around the still swinging pendulum. He asked the class, does the teacher believe in the law of the pendulum? And the students unanimously said, no, he does not because he had moved out of the way. The law of the pendulum, it shouldn't hit his face as it returned back. What's the point? Well, sometimes the trials and tribulations of this life will come at you like a swinging pendulum. And as the law of the pendulum stated and tested true that it will not return back to its original position, that the faith of that professor was tested and came up short. He actually didn't believe the law of the pendulum, even though he said he did. And these trials and tribulations in our life will test our faith in Christ, particularly in his provision for us. And so, do we really believe in his great love for us and his faithfulness to provide for us and see us through life's greatest challenges? Do we really believe that? I'll leave that up for you to decide. But that's a question you only can answer. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.